Hey, Drilled listeners, we're back. I took a long break there to work on reporting the next season. And because uh, pandemic parenting makes work hard. (laughs) This month, we'll be releasing a few bonus episodes. And next month, we'll get into our next narrative season. And it's a long history of the gas industry, including the fracking boom, how that fed into a plastics boom, and the many crazy tactics the industry has used and continues to use to paint itself as a clean energy solution. Make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss that. Also, a quick update on last season. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals in New York just ruled in Stephen Donziger's favor on at least some of the civil contempt charges he was facing. If you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, go back and listen to season five all about the long Chevron Ecuador case. It's been going on for more than 30 years. Donziger is still going to trial on criminal contempt charges, and we'll have a longer update on all of that for you soon. But this is a small win for him. Today, we're talking to Stanford researcher Ben Franta, who you might remember from season one. Franta studies the history of science, and we spoke with him last time about how much oil money is funding climate research centers at university campuses all over the country. Today, I invited him on to share a really big recent discovery that I don't think has gotten nearly enough attention about how early the American Petroleum Institute knew about climate change and, importantly, started messaging against climate action. That started happening in 1980, according to some new stuff that Franta has dug up. That's way earlier than people previously thought. The American Petroleum Institute is, of course, the trade group for the oil and gas industry. It's been around for more than 100 years and was the brainchild of one of our madmen from season three, Ivy Ledbetter Lee, the longtime publicist for the Rockefellers and Standard Oil. So, you know, no big surprise that they were in on climate denial early. That conversation coming up right after this quick break. Hi, it's Amy here, and I'm excited to tell you about a new podcast from APM Studios and Western Sounds called Ripple. Such a good idea, this show. In the aftermath of major disasters, there is always a swarm of media attention. The public is captivated by breaking news, there's coverage and controversy, and then the cameras and the public just move on. But the stories are not finished. Ripple is a new series investigating the stories we were told were over. In season one, the reporting team traveled hundreds of miles across the Gulf Coast to learn the ongoing effects of the 2010 Deepwater Horizon oil spill, which are still impacting many coastal residents more than a decade later. You can listen now to Ripple wherever you get your podcasts. So my name is Ben Franta, and I'm a JD PhD student at Stanford University. Uh, the PhD part of my life is about the history of climate science. So I do research on the history of climate science in general and what fossil fuel companies knew about climate change. Awesome. And you recently published something about a policy booklet you found 
published by the American Petroleum Institute in 1980. Can you explain a little bit about what that is and how you found it? Yeah, absolutely. So I found this while doing archival research at the University of Wyoming. That's in Laramie. And it's a policy book published by the American Petroleum Institute. And I believe it is the earliest known climate disinformation from the API. And of course, you know, the API is really the nerve center of the U.S. oil and gas industry. So all the major players of the industry were members of it, including Exxon and Chevron, uh, as well as the European companies like BP and Shell. Right, right. Um, this was super interesting to me when I was reading it because one of the Exxon guys that I interviewed, this guy Richard Worthmer, said that he, you know, he was at Exxon during this time period, I think from like 79 to 82 or 83. And he said that that he had suspected that like the the big shift in the industry was kind of orchestrated through the API and that, you know, Exxon had a lot of power there, but also the API had a lot of power throughout the industry. So um, anyway, I don't know. It's just it's interesting to see how they were starting to talk about the issue in um in 1980. So what was like kind of the big, the big finding for you in this? What was, was there anything surprising? Well, I was surprised um, because previously the conventional wisdom about climate disinformation was that it arose around 1989. And that's when the fossil fuel industry created the global climate coalition and groups like the Marshall Institute began pushing out climate disinformation into the public sphere. Um, You know, and this, this conventional wisdom led to a sort of question in, in historical circles, uh, because, you know, as you've talked about on your podcast, companies like Exxon and the API were doing in-house research and monitoring of climate science since at least the late 1970s. So there was this question of, were these companies initially supportive of climate science? And then did they move to denial only later? And that, that question and that narrative, uh, for example, was an important part of the New York Times Magazine article, Losing Earth, which was very popular. And it largely absolved the fossil fuel industry of climate inaction throughout the 1980s. Yeah, it kind of made it all about human nature, right? That's right. <laughs> I know. And so this this discovery shows that that narrative was mistaken. Now, of course, you know, that narrative fit the information that was available at the time, or at least a lot of it, but now we know more. And it turns out that even as the industry was doing climate research Internally, it was also promoting this false and misleading information about global warming to the public. That's super interesting. Maybe I'll have you read a couple of the the more I don't know, the, like some of the lines that that um, that really try to to convey doubt about the um, about the science of global warming. Sure. So the American Petroleum Institute, and I think this is also significant. It acknowledged in this document that. Uh, CO2 was a pollutant. It says, 
when coal or any other fossil fuel is burned, carbon dioxide emissions occur. In itself, carbon dioxide is harmless. Nature itself is a major source. However, some scientists believe that large concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere can in time cause climatic changes, specifically higher temperatures worldwide, the quote-unquote greenhouse effect. Um, you know, even there you see some of these... Scientists believe. Scientists believe. So on. Good one. And, Good one, API. Yeah, exactly. But it goes on and it says... Other scientists are more sanguine or optimistic about the presence of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Some scientists, including Dr. Carl Sagan, Cornell University astronomer, see a cooling phenomenon as counteracting the greenhouse effect. So when I saw that, I was very interested because, of course, Carl Sagan is, you know, very famous astronomer and a public communicator about science. And he actually wrote about his worry, deep concern about global warming in books like Cosmos, uh, which I think was also from around 1980. And in that book, he wrote, the surface environment of Venus is a warning. Something disastrous can happen to a planet rather like our own. The carbon dioxide content of the Earth's atmosphere is increasing dramatically, and the possibility of a runaway greenhouse effect suggests that we have to be careful. Even a one or two degree rise in the global temperature can have catastrophic consequences. Wow. So that is the same exact year, 1980, and it is not at all how the API is presenting his no. Not at all. Wow. So, you know, that's one example of the of the misleading presentation about climate science that was given by the API to the public. Uh, and that's sort of a, that's a classic technique uh, portraying the, the scientific community as being more split, more divided on the issue than it actually is. And that of course became a staple of climate uh, denial on, and deflecting attention away from fossil fuels for decades to come. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's super, super interesting. What is this um, world coal study that you mentioned in this, in this article? Yeah. So this is another, another technique of climate um, uh, denial uh, and really something that the fossil fuel industry does fairly regularly is to point to studies that look like they're done independently by by scientists, by third parties, that apparently support the position of the industry. Uh, and in this booklet, we have the exact same phenomenon. Um, so the API pointed to something here called the World Coal Study, which was actually largely funded and even carried out by representatives of fossil fuel groups, but it was organized by a professor at MIT. So it looked credible from the outside. And MIT always taking that sweet, sweet <laughs> oil money. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and that study, which that study came out in 1982 or 1980 as well. So, so that study also came out in 1980. 
and it called for a tripling of worldwide coal production by the year 2000, and it simply asserted that this would have no serious consequences for human health or for the environment. Wow. Which is a rather laughable conclusion. This was like around the same time that people were trying to make the argument that um, CO2 emissions would like grow more plants on the planet too, right? That's right. This is about when that, yeah. that argument arose. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I want to just note that this world coal study, even though we might think that its conclusions really make no sense, it was actually quite influential. So the director of that study, that was MIT business professor Carol Wilson, he lobbied the Carter administration with using the study to double coal production by 1990, which which was actually adopted and it became official uh, G7 policy that the G7 countries are the United States, the UK, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, and Canada. That became official G7 policy in 1981. Wow. Wow. I love this quote from him that you have, too, where he's describing um, his year as um, having spent the last year peddling coal all over the world. That's right. (laughs) What a glorious year that was. (sighs) Wow. That's, um, yeah. That's really that's really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about this industry-wide task force that um, API had created sort of the year before um, as well? I know that uh, Neela Banerjee wrote about that a few years back, but um, just to kind of orient people in this time period again. That's right. So, you know, we, ni- this 1980 document shows what the, the API was telling the public about climate change. And we can compare that to the internal memos that that the API had at the time. And, and one of the most important groups in the API related to climate change was this task force on CO2 and climate. And really what this was, was a group to monitor climate science and developments, and it had representatives on it from the the major oil companies who were members of the API, um, from BP, from Exxon, and so on. And one of the, the bombshell documents that we have so far uh, is the meeting minutes of a presentation given to the, that task force by um, a researcher from Stanford University uh, about climate change. Wow. And this was from around the same time. So this presentation was from 1980. And during this presentation, uh, the, the person presenting, it was his name was John Lowerman. He was an engineer from Stanford University. He talked about the likely impacts of fossil fuels if they continued to be developed um, as they were. And one of the slides says, uh, one of the slides says, a one degree rise would happen by 2005, but it would be barely noticeable. A two and a half degree rise would happen by 2038, and that would have major economic consequences and would be strongly regionally dependent on where you were in the world. 
and then a five degree rise would happen by 2067, and that would have globally catastrophic effects. And, you know, of course, we have already seen about a one degree rise, so this is fairly on track. Um, but this shows that by 1980, the API had actually been directly warned that business as usual would would create these globally catastrophic effects within the 21st century. And yet, in this policy book, the API is telling the public, we need to expand fossil fuel production of all kinds, oil, gas, and coal, because at that time, the oil industry wanted a lot of coal production in order to produce synthetic fuels, which is liquid fuel made out of coal. And it knew that this would lead to a huge amount of CO2 being put into the atmosphere. And yet it told the public that this would be safe. And this is essentially the opposite of what the group had just been warned about that very year. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, especially interesting given that, you know, the API has been named in... Uh, Minnesota's climate fraud lawsuit. So it'll be interesting to see how some of this stuff, um, you know, plays into that and also what else they might find when, I guess it's if, but when they get to discovery in that, in that case. Yeah, that will be very interesting. Yeah. When I, when I see this, this false misleading information coming from the API in 1980, it tells me that at that time, the industry wasn't just paying close attention to climate science through its internal task force, but it was also actively intervening to prevent climate from being fully considered in public policy, even at that time. And that, that suggests that this sort of approach of, of denial and deception was the first instinct, if you want to think about it that way, of the petroleum industry as as the climate policy grew in the public eye. So, you know, even in the early 80s, from the very earliest days of climate as a policy matter, the industry was already poisoning the well, if you want to use that, that phrase. And this means there, there may not have been a time when climate policy discussions were free from the influence of disinformation from the industry. It might have always been corrupted uh, if disinformation was being put out there this early. Yeah. I do feel like it's really important to understand sort of how the public's understanding and politicians' understanding of climate science was shaped in those early years when, you know, oil companies were doing some research. You know, if we think about this, you know, this is 1980, and that might seem like a long time ago. Um, and in some ways, it is a long time ago. But because energy infrastructure lasts for so long, the things that happened in 1980 still have direct impacts today. Uh, energy decisions, like if you build a refinery or a coal plant or pipeline, that's going to last for sometimes 50 years or more. Mm. So, so this sort of disinformation from 1980, and of course, ever since then, has actual real 
material effects on how much global warming we experience now and in the future and if, therefore how much damage occurs. So even though this is in the past, decades in the past, it, in a very real sense, it is causing us harm today. And, you know, that's just, that's, I think, you know, an unfortunate aspect of it, but it's also why it's so important that we figure out what happened uh, so we can correct it. Totally. Yeah, because, well, it's so, it's frustrating um, to see the same thing get repeated in so many ways now, you know, or even I, I was talking to someone earlier today who was like, wow, all of a sudden it seems like disinformation is such a big thing. And I'm like, it's not all of a sudden though. It's been, that's like, because this whole machine has been built for like a hundred years. That's right. Um, That's right. We need to understand that. And I, um, my big soapbox recently is that I really think the media needs to take a hard look at itself and its role in all of this stuff. And, ways that it can inoculate itself and the public against more of it. That's absolutely right. Yeah, it's bad. Because, you know, as you've talked about it in your podcast, some of these techniques of mass manipulation, you know, are very old and they're commonly used between different industries. Um, Techniques like the third party technique where you, you know, falsely ascribe essentially your own position to a group that looks like it's independent from you, but it's actually not, you know, that's just one example, but, but these sort of PR techniques, um, they're very common and it's amazing how, how common they are once you learn about them. And, you know, you have a whole season about that and it's one of the best resources about, about that topic. But I think it would be, you know, amazing for um, for the media to develop a, um, a closer familiarity with all of that. it for this time big thanks to ben fronta for joining us i will drop links in the show notes to his research on this subject and the documents that he was able to find come back next week we'll be talking about a new report that had the oil and gas guys all up in arms it found that surprise all those jobs that the fracking industry was supposed to deliver never really materialized. Come back for that and we'll see you soon. Drilled is an original production of Critical Frequency. It's reported and produced by me, Amy Westervelt. Our music is composed by B. Beeman, David Whited, and Martin Wissenberg. You can find us online at drillednews.com, where you'll find transcripts and related documents for podcast episodes, as well as more climate accountability reporting. You can follow us on Twitter at WeAreDrilled, and you can follow me at Amy Westervelt. 
big thank you to our Patreon subscribers. You are the ones making this podcast happen. If you would like to become a subscriber, do so now. It's patreon.com slash drilled. You get ad-free episodes, bonus content, and we even have some merch through there. Thanks for your support.